You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us turn in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians to chapter 2, and we will read this chapter in its entirety. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, But with the help of our God, we dare to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day, in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their efforts to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always keep up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. This morning the text for the sermon is also taken from the first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians from chapter 2. And verse 13. So let's read that verse a second time. Through the Spirit, Paul writes, And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Beloved people of God, one of the things that we notice a lot as we read through the letters of Paul is that he's frequently preoccupied in defending himself in his apostolic office and ministry. It seems that wherever the Apostle Paul went, 
throughout the ancient world, preaching the gospel, planting churches, there were always people questioning his motives and casting doubt thereby also upon his message. And just as it happened everywhere else, so it also happened in Thessalonica. As we can see from chapters 1 and 2 of this letter, people in this church were saying a lot of negative things about the Apostle Paul. For example, some of them were alleging that the Apostle was only in the gospel ministry for the sake of the money that he could make through it, and that this was his real motive. And additionally, other people were saying that the Apostle Paul didn't really care that much about the people in Thessalonica, that he was far more concerned about his own ego and his own standing in the community. They said he was not a truly loving minister of the word, but rather was a self-promoting man. And so in the face of that kind of opposition, the Apostle Paul here in chapter 2, in the first 12 verses, mounts a strong defense of his own integrity. He doesn't do that in the first place for his own sake. It's not that Paul necessarily cares that much about what people think of him. But Paul defends the integrity of his office and ministry for the sake of the gospel. And he does it for the sake of the congregation in Thessalonica. Because Paul knows, he knows as a servant of the word, that if people are doubting his motives and questioning his character, that this will also cause them to have doubts about the message which he is conveying to the people. And so Paul spends time defending his own credibility because he knows that the credibility of the gospel is involved in his own person. And then in verse 13, it seems as though Paul is moving away from his defense of his ministry to a new topic. He writes now about the word of God, about where this word has come from, and about how this word is working in the congregation. But in reality, as we will see this morning, brothers and sisters, the Apostle Paul is still writing, also here in verse 13, about his own defense. He's still in verse 13, as in verses 1 through 12, defending his integrity and defending the integrity of the message which he has brought to Thessalonica. Because you see, certain people in the church of Thessalonica were saying that what Paul had brought to them was in fact just a human message. What Paul preached, they were saying, was just Paul's opinion. And in no way should the members of the church in Thessalonica elevate the message of Paul above the message of other teachers, other preachers, other philosophers, other rabbis. What Paul was saying, they alleged, was no more or no less important than what anybody else in Thessalonica might be thinking or saying. And so in verse 13 here, Paul responds to this assertion that his word, his message, was merely a human message. Paul defends here the divine origin of the word which he has preached in Thessalonica, and he does this so that the people of God in Thessalonica might remain true to the gospel. And so I bring the message this morning with the theme the word of God is at work in the church. And we will consider, first of all, the divine origin of this word. And secondly, the divine power of this word. First then, the divine origin of this word. Well, Paul begins here in verse 13 by reminding the Christians of Thessalonica of their initial response to the gospel when, when he, Paul, first came to this city 
and preached among them. We can read about this in Acts chapter 17, and from that part of Scripture we find out that when Paul and his fellow servants of the Word came to Thessalonica, a lot of people responded positively. Many people embraced the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. We read in verse 4 of Acts 17, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. And right from the start, the Apostle Paul had made it abundantly clear that he wasn't coming to this city with his own message. The message he brought was the gospel of God. As we can read in chapter 1, Paul did not bring a Paul gospel. He did not bring a human gospel. Paul emphasized right from the very beginning of his ministry in Thessalonica that what he was bringing was the gospel of God. That means it has its origin in God. It's not simply about God, but it's from God. And Paul, of course, is is referring here in the first place to what happened to him when he was traveling from Israel to Damascus a long time before he wrote this letter. When Paul was on his way to Damascus, the Lord Jesus Christ had revealed himself to Paul. He had revealed to Paul his own glory, the glory of his person, but he had also given to Paul verbal revelation of the gospel, and he had commissioned Paul to take that verbal revelation of the gospel and to preach it among Jews and among Gentiles. And throughout his ministry, the Apostle Paul was always at pains to show us, to show his readers, that the message he had was not something he had dreamt up himself, it was not something he had received from other apostles, It wasn't something he had simply discovered by studying the Old Testament. No, the message that Paul preached, he emphasized over and over, was a message that God had personally delivered and entrusted to him. For example, in Galatians 1 and verses 11 through 12, we read, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, sometimes we need to stop and think about that kind of sentence in Paul's writings. We need to stop and reflect about the miracle of God speaking. The miracle of the invisible hidden God actually speaking verbally, revealing himself verbally to his servants, the prophets, and the apostles. You see, the wonder of our Christian religion is that we have a God, and we have a relationship with a great and gracious God who is exalted in the heavens, who transcends us in every way, but who nonetheless has condescended to speak. A God who opens his mouth, as it were, and speaks. He communicates. He does not hide, but reveals himself. And what God reveals is not necessarily all the information that you and I might like to have. And yet it is just the right information, just the right content that we actually need. It is exactly what we need in order that we might be reconciled to God and live in this world as his reconciled people. 
And because the message originates with God, because God gave it himself directly through his own verbal revelation, the message is entirely trustworthy. Because it's from God. It's infallible. Because it's from God, we can trust it 100%. This message from God does not have any deception in it. It's not a mingling of true and false so that we would have to discern somehow what is true and what is false. It's not a mingling of truth and error so that we, by our own human wisdom, have to sort out actually what now is is truth and what is error. No, it is revelation from God. Paul didn't make it up. He received it from the Lord. He passed it on faithfully. And therefore, it is entirely infallible. It is entirely without error. It is entirely trustworthy. And that's a great, beautiful comfort for us in our lives. We live in a world full of mystery, a world full of confusion, a world full of error. We live in a world that is spiritually and morally a dark world. And into that dark world shines this bright light of the infallible revelation of God, which he entrusted to his servant Paul and to the other apostles and to all the prophets who came before them. How wonderful is that, brothers and sisters, that you have a a word in this dark and confusing world on which you can literally lean the weight of your entire human existence. You can rest your entire worldview. You can rest your entire morality. You can do that without any hesitation, any doubt. You can rest it on this word, this revelation, which comes from God, which is 100% reliable and trustworthy, and you will never be disappointed. You know, if you put your trust 100% in a human word, in a human opinion, in a human philosophy, for example, in a human economist, or a human educator, or a human political scientist, or political leader, Put your trust in people like that and somewhere along the line you're going to be disappointed because you'll find out that that what you've been leaning on isn't in fact entirely trustworthy and your confidence will be disappointed. But when you when you put your trust in the word of God which Paul received and which the other apostles received with him and which the holy prophets received, then you'll never have to worry about factual errors You'll never have to worry about broken promises. You'll never have to worry about outright contradictions. No, you will have in your possession that sure foundation, that eminently trustworthy foundation on which you can build your whole life, the life of your family, the life of your church, the life of your community, and it will be firmly founded. Well, when Paul came to Thessalonica with Silas the first time, There were indeed many, many people who were deeply convinced that the message that Paul brought was of divine origin. And if you ask how they came to that conviction, then you have to answer by saying that it was through the power of the Holy Spirit. Believing Paul's message was not a matter of Paul being so wonderfully eloquent, although he probably was. And it wasn't the result of Paul being a very persuasive man, which he certainly was. No, when the Thessalonians came to recognize the divine origin of the message, that was, congregation, the result of the testimony of the Holy Spirit in their spirits. The same Spirit who gave Paul revelation 
also illuminated and convicted the hearers of his message so that they could recognize this spiritual message for what it is and could receive it in faith. And Paul mentions something of this in chapter 1, verse 5, when he says, You know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You see, when the Holy Spirit worked through the word which he himself had given to Paul, the result was faith. The same Spirit who gave Paul the message gave the Thessalonians the ability to discern the truth of that message and to respond to it with childlike trust and confidence. And I think the take-home point of all of this is that you can never prove in, in what we might call a scientific way that the message of the gospel really is the Word of God. I cannot prove that to you in a hundred sermons, and you cannot prove it to any of your neighbors in a hundred years. Only God can give confidence to a human being that the word which God gives is indeed a a divine word. Only God can do that. God can do that internally in the heart of a sinner. God can do that by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so when we bring the message of the gospel to the world, we better better be sure that we do it clearly. We better be sure that we do it faithfully in fidelity to the infallible gospel we have received. But at the same time, we better do it prayerfully with the full awareness that we simply have no power. There is no human power that can bring even a single human being ever to that position of hearing and discerning in the Bible the true voice of the living God. We must do our evangelistic work in humility and in total dependence upon the Lord. And for these reasons, it's very important to see here in verse 13 how the Apostle Paul expresses thanksgiving. He says, we thank God continually because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men. Paul thanks God for this. Paul never would ever just take that as a matter of course. It's never a matter of course when when a servant of the word brings the word and and people respond. That's something that, that truly is in the category of miraculous. And therefore, Paul gives thanks here in verse 13 for this miraculous effect of the work of the Holy Spirit that he has brought about a believing response to the gospel in Thessalonica. And you know, it's the same miracle that brings us together each and every week on the Lord's Day. It's the miracle of God's word coming in the form of written words and scripture. This is what drives the minister to his study day after day and week after week. And it's the miracle of God's infallible word coming in the writings of Holy Scripture that motivates you from day to day in your homes to open Scripture and to read and reflect and meditate and ruminate over it and strive to apply it to your family and your personal life. It's knowing that the Scripture is the very word of God that brought you here this morning and compels you to listen. You didn't come here to hear human opinions. You didn't come here to hear the latest philosophies. You didn't come here to find out what the wise men of the world are thinking. You came here today because you know in your heart that Holy Scripture is the infallible Word of God, that it has power to give life, power to save life, power to redirect life, power to restructure life, 
power to totally transform life into a living sacrifice of thankfulness to God. Knowing that Scripture is the very Word of God is what also makes you go to Bible study. It's what makes you attend to the teacher when he's teaching Bible at school or when he's giving a biblical perspective on whatever subject he's teaching. And it's the knowledge that the Bible is the infallible Word of God that gives you persistence in reading the Bible and hearing sermons, even when there are things you don't understand right away, things that you may even find somewhat confusing, things that perhaps even cause you to react negatively when you first hear them or read them. You just work your way through all of that, and you persist, and you keep reading, you keep reflecting, and you keep praying because you know it's worth it because this is the infallible Word of God on which you can build your whole life. And so we can ask ourselves on this Sunday morning, do we indeed, brothers and sisters, sufficiently reckon? Do we sufficiently reckon with the divine origin of the Bible? And does our knowledge of what Scripture actually is, does that work in us a hunger for Scripture? You know, that's a sure sign of someone becoming a Christian. A sure sign of someone becoming a Christian is is when they begin to hunger for the Word like a baby hungers for its mother's milk, to use the metaphor of Peter. When you see that happening in someone, then you know they are on the way to the kingdom. But when you notice in yourself, perhaps, that you're not as interested as you once were or ought to be or should be, well, that's a warning signal to you that you need to get back on track with the Lord. You need to reorient your life again to His Word and be aware of the satanic temptations that are seeking to distract you from the Word. Because you know, if there's one thing the devil would love to do, it would, it would be to create doubt in your mind about the Word, and it would be to keep that Word closed so that you don't open your life to its power. If he can succeed in that, then, then he has won a great victory over you. And so let us remind ourselves today, and let us remind ourselves every day, that this book which we revere is not of human origin. It is, a, it is a truly a miraculous book. It is a book with a divine author. And that knowledge compels us to give it our full attention day after day and Sunday by Sunday. Well, having seen what this passage teaches about the divine origin of the Word, let us now look also at the divine power of the Word, which is expressed in the second part of this verse. Indeed, at the end of verse 13, Paul speaks about how the Thessalonians accepted the apostolic message, not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God which is at work among you who believe. That's a beautiful way for Paul to write about the word of God. The word of God is not sitting idle in Thessalonica. It's not just somewhere on a bookshelf in one of the elders' houses. No, it's, it's a word, he says, which is at work. And the word that he uses here is related to the English word energy. This is a word which is energetically busy. It's energetically active. Or to change the idea, it's energizing the Thessalonians. And it can do that because it is indeed living and active. It is doing things. Things are happening in Thessalonica. Things are happening in personal lives. Things are happening in relationships. Things are happening in families. Things are happening amongst the young people. Lives are being revolutionized because they are being exposed to the light of the infallible revelation of God. 
So Paul wants the believers in Thessalonica to to sit up and and take notice of of the living power of the word at work in their lives. People are trying to brush Paul off as a nobody in Thessalonica. Some of his opponents are doing that in the church. They're saying that that Paul he's a nobody and and that Paul his message is just is just one more message among many. But Paul says, look, nobody can deny that the message which I preached among you has revolutionized the lives of those who heard it. And that's that's my attestation, if you will, as an apostle. My attestation is the transformed lives of you Thessalonians. That reminds us of, of how the Apostle Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians 3, also dealing with critics. Paul certainly had his critics. That must have been one of the big challenges of his life and ministry. But in 2 Corinthians 3, he's responding to critics who, who say, who is Paul and what are Paul's credentials and what kind of letters of reference does Paul have? And Paul responds by saying, well, you Corinthians, you are our letter of reference. You are a letter from Christ. You are the result of our ministry, rich and not with ink, but with the spirit of a living God and not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. And so what's going on there in 2 Corinthians 3, just as here in 1 Thessalonians 2, is that Paul points to the transformed, revolutionized, turned upside down lives of the Christians of Corinth as evidence of the divine truth of the message which he proclaimed. The word really works. The word has divine energy. And the Thessalonians certainly have noticed that. For example, if you go to chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, we find out that the Thessalonians were famous throughout Macedonia and Achaia because they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's a, that's a description of their conversion. They, they turned from the multitude of idols which they had been bowing down before, to which they had been bringing sacrifices for whom they had been living. And, and now God grabbed a hold of them with the message of the apostles with that infallible word, and he revolutionized, revolutionized their lives so that now they are living for the true and living God. So that's the first effect of the word. And if you go back to chapter 3, or chapter 1, verse 3, we see more effects of the Word. Paul says there, We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a lot of stuff going on in Thessalonica. A lot of new things are happening. New virtues are present that had not been known before. And a new morality has taken hold. A new ethic has developed. A new spirituality has has been created. And all of that by the word, which Paul says is not sitting idle, but is at work. It's energetically pushing forward God's agenda in Thessalonica. Open your eyes and see it, says Paul. Don't doubt that my message is of divine origin. You can know it is, in part, from the beautiful fruit which it brings about among the people of God. And so, having seen this, we could ask ourselves a question this morning. When we come to church to hear God's Word on the Lord's Day, what are we actually looking for? And I probably could get a lot of different answers if I spoke with you after the service about that. People are, I suppose, looking for different things when they come to hear the Word on the Lord's Day. 
We might say people are looking for comfort in some situations. They're looking for clarification. Maybe they're looking for interesting new exegesis of a difficult passage. Maybe they're wanting to be confirmed in their faith. There are some people who, who are always wanting to learn something new. They, they hope to go to church and, and hear something they've never heard before. And then it's a good service for them. And that's all fine and well. And we can have no objection to people coming to church to hear the word with, with all kinds of different expectations. As long as, as long as it's all combined with one other factor. And that critical factor is, Lord God, I come to church not in the first place to hear something new. I don't come into the church to, hear, to have my intellectual questions satisfied or my curiosity fulfilled. No, I come to church in the first place to be changed. And so I ask you this morning, was that part of your Sunday morning mentality? Was it part of your Sunday morning devotional expectation? Part of your Sunday morning prayer? That when you came to church, you would hear the word of God and that this word of God would work among you, that it would change you, that it would redirect you, reorient you, restructure your life, covenantally renew you. Because you know what? If that's not part of the package, if that's not part of why you came here, then all the other stuff will fall by the wayside and this will be for you an unprofitable morning, an unprofitable afternoon. One of the things that the Lord Jesus continuously said throughout his ministry in Galilee and Judea was after telling a parable or preaching a sermon or uttering some pithy saying, our Lord Jesus Christ would often follow it up by saying something like, take heed that you hear. In other words, the Lord Jesus didn't take it for granted that people were hearing. He kept reminding them, take heed that you hear because There are powerful forces distracting you and not wanting you to hear. And so the Lord Jesus just kept emphasizing, take heed that you really hear, that you are focused on that life-giving word which is at work and has the power to turn your life upside down. Makes me think also of James 1. James 1 in verse 22 is concerned about how people receive the word. And he says, be sure that you are not merely hearers of the word, but doers of it. So when we come to church on Sunday morning and afternoon, or when we open our Bibles on Monday morning or Tuesday evening, or go to Bible study, this must always be part of the package, that we have come to the word in order that this word might work in us and change us and bring us back to the Lord in a renewed way. Now you might say, well, that sounds really good, but what about the lives of those who never seem to be changed by the Word? What about those who might hear the Word for years and just seem to keep loving the same way? It never seems to really register. And maybe that's even true for you. Maybe you have that feeling sometimes that the Word isn't really registering that somehow it's not really getting through, and that it certainly doesn't seem to be having a transforming effect on your life. Well, in answer, we can only say this, brothers and sisters, that the Word of God 
always does do something in your heart. It is a word which is always at work, even when you don't think so. It's either drawing you closer to the Lord and renewing your covenant bond with Him, or that word is hardening you. And that's why we sang from Psalm 95 a little while ago, because the great warning of Psalm 95 is today, when you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. And I think it may safely be said that when you attend divine worship and hear the preaching of the divine word, one of these two things is always happening. You are either being renewed, revitalized, drawn back to your father, reoriented, having your life restructured, brought into fellowship, or you are being hardened and you are pushing God a little bit further away from you. And that's kind of frightening. That means that all of you who are here this morning won't leave in exactly the same way as you came. You're going to be changed. And it may be quite subtle. And it might it might be something you couldn't even really articulate. But at some deep, profound, personal, spiritual level, the Word of God always has an effect. It always accomplishes something. It's a working Word. And so once again, let's realize the Bible is not given just to inform us of certain matters. It certainly isn't given to amuse us or entertain us. Instead, the Bible, the apostolic message, the infallible word, always comes with a call. It challenges our sin. It asks us to wake up. Sometimes it devastates us. And always it calls, always it calls for faith and obedience. You know, somewhere the Apostle Paul has said in his writings something about how If we are not properly prepared for the Lord's Supper, we might end up eating and drinking judgment upon ourselves. That's that's certainly sobering. And, And for that reason, a lot of Christian people spend extra time when it's time for Holy Communion examining their hearts and searching out their spirits and rededicating themselves to the Lord because they don't want to be eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. But I would put it to you this morning that not only can you eat and drink judgment upon yourself, you can also hear judgment upon yourself. You can be judged and you will be judged for failing to respond to the proclamation of the living Word of God which is at work among you. As Christ said in John 15 and verse 22, if I had not come and spoken to them, the Jewish leaders, they would not be guilty of their sin. Now, however, They have no excuse for their sin. And that's the position you were in this morning. If God had not sent a minister of the gospel to you, if you had not been brought up in the household of faith, then you would not be guilty of the sin of rejecting the lordship of Jesus Christ. But now you have heard the message of the salvation and lordship of Jesus Christ, and you have no excuse for your sin. And so, congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I ask you, do you not feel deep within yourself a longing for change? Isn't it safe to say that at some level we're we're all dissatisfied with where we're at? And that we all recognize that we, we still need to grow up into Christ, that His image needs to be formed more clearly in us? Does that prospect not entice you? Does it not entrance you? Does it not enthrall you? Well, if that is part of who you are, if that is part of your desire to be changed in this way, then thanks be to God 
for he has given what you need. He has given you his word, his holy, infallible word. And as you receive that word in all humility, you will become, like the Corinthians, a living letter of Christ. And something else will happen too, and I wrap up with that. What what happens as you open your life more and more to the word and become a living letter of Christ? Well, what happens is that your testimony to the community in which you live is greatly strengthened. It's very hard to be a credible witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's very hard to go out there and tell people about how powerful the word of God is if you haven't felt it and if you aren't feeling it and if you aren't seeing it as a progressive reality in your life. If it's something vague and sterile for you and just a matter of words, you're just not going to have a lot of confidence to reach out in your community and and say, people, you need to hear this message, this life-transforming message. But if you are living out that message and if you are being changed by that message more and more into the image of God, then you will be able to go with confidence into your community and you will declare the whole counsel of God and you'll be able to do that just as Paul did with integrity and with diligence and with boldness because you know it really is the true word of God at work in your life, in the church, and in the whole world. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.